but it just doesn't grab you until you start digging into it. It's one of those passages. As one preacher said, it is a dense passage. Um, and it, um, it doesn't uh, grab you as a narrative does sometimes where there's a story being told and, and all of that. But I would like to just uh, point out that these words are the words of Christ uh, speaking to those who oppose the healing um, at the pool uh, of this man. Just consider that again. How could you not rejoice in the healing of a man who's been sick for 38 years? Uh, You can if you're legalistic and uh, in a dead religion. So let's read here. In John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Wow. There's so much here. There's so much uh, here. And I want to simply consider, as I said earlier, the setting wherein Christ spoke these words. He spoke them to the Pharisees who... Uh, were upset uh, about him healing this man. And after healing, as I said, after healing this man at the pool, the Pharisees were upset because Christ had done it on the Sabbath. Well, you might say more than upset. They were furious. They were furious. And so there's a confrontation in verse 18. Or verse, yes, verse... um, 16 through 18, there's this confrontation. 
Verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus just pours fuel on the fire. I mean, as someone said, are there any men among you? This should fire us up. That there's such a love for the truth and such a desire to fulfill the word of God, the work of God, that Christ, when, they, when, he runs, when he comes into confrontation with these Pharisees, these legalistic religious fanatics, so to speak, and he, he, he comes into this conflict with them, he backs away not an inch, but rather he doubles down. And he just keeps doubling down. And he says to them, you know, he, he just points out to them that my father's been working until now, and so I work. And they instantly recognized it that he was, you know, putting himself equal with God. Therefore, the Jews, in verse 18, sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Listen, he did not break the Sabbath. It was, he might have broken their rabbinical traditions and what they had taught and what they supported each other with. You know, one rabbi taught this here and another taught this at this synagogue. And so they, you know, they glorified each other, as we'll see later. They, they were building this system. But when Christ upset the apple cart, they were very angry. So they now want to kill him for at least two reasons. For breaking the Sabbath according to their traditions and for blasphemy. Blasphemy where he says, I am equal with my father. And this I, I shall point out to you in John ten thirty three where he says this, and they accuse him. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus asked them, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For, I, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they took this statement that Jesus was making to them in defense of what he had done, they took it as blasphemy. So he, they, he, he now had two strikes against him, breaking the Sabbath according to the traditions and blasphemy. But Christ doesn't back up an inch. He just keeps preaching the truth to them. He just keeps representing who he really is to them. He continues to declare his equality with the Father, verse 19 through 30. So, our text today. So, when Christ made these very amazing claims in verses 17 through 30, he said these things like, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he gives... You know, he gives all judgment to the Son, and the, the Son can give life to whoever he will. 
Christ makes these amazing claims here in John 5, verse 17 through 30. We looked at that last time. Now, in order for us to understand what is going on here in our text today, now he is calling witnesses to show these people the right for his making these claims. He calls witnesses and say, hey, and essentially what Christ is doing, don't take my word for it, you know. Look here. I've got all these witnesses that prove the validity of the claims I have made. That, in a nutshell, is what we're looking at today. The witnesses that Christ calls on to make his claims more valid in the eyes of the people who were listening to him. Does Christ need any validation? Of course not. The problem is our unbelief. We need we need verification. We need evidence. We can't just take Christ's word for it. And so he bows down. He condescends to our humanity and says, Look, these things I'm saying to you. Why? That you might be saved. You see? It's man who's the problem. Christ says, I don't need any man's testimony. I know who I am. I don't need your validation or approval or anything like that. I don't need to pat you to pat me on the back and say how well I've preached today. That's what Christ basically is saying. I don't need you to tell me who I am. I don't need your approval. Actually, in John 8, he says something very similar. Notice what he says in John 8. Just flip back a little bit. I want to show this to you. John 8, 14. In verse 13, John 8, 13, The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from. You see that? I know where I came from and where I'm going. The problem is, you don't know where I came from. And you don't know where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I don't do that. I, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so what you have here very clearly is Jesus saying, I know where I'm from. And so going back here to John 5, our text today represents the validation or witnesses for the claims Christ made in verse 19 through 30. And notice what he told this crowd of wannabe assassins, and I already pointed that out to you. A crowd of wannabe assassins, if they'd had a chance, they'd have killed him. They wanted to kill him. It states it clearly. They hated this, this Savior. But he says, verse 34, I, don't, I do not receive testimony from men. I don't need your approval, as I said earlier, but I say these things that you may be saved. What love in light of such hate 
Isn't that a wonderful picture of our Savior here? I'm saying these things so that faith may be born in you and that you might ultimately be saved. That's what he's saying here. I say these things not for my own sake and and that I might somehow receive honor and glory from you or validation of of my being the Son of God. No, I am saying these things for your sake that you might ultimately be saved. And so I want to work my way through this passage in three headings or points. And first off is the record or the references that Christ gives. That's point number one. And then number two is the resistance of dead religion. And then number three, the result of rejection. The result of rejection. So number one is the record. Now, in the old King James, or in the King James, I should say, it uses the the word record a bit more than we see it in the New King James. But I'm used to preaching out of the New King James, but the, and it speaks more of the record or of the witness. If I bear witness, he says, my wit, of myself, my witness is not true. Um, but what it, what, it comes from the same root word, martus. This, and it's translated testimony, testify, uh, it's, uh, Witness or record that all comes from that same root word, martus, which means to to give evidence or to testify of. And it's where we get the word martyr. And that is the name, by the way, of many of the early church, men who rose up and gave witness to the Savior, to the gospel of the kingdom. And they when they gave witness, what happened to them? They were martyred for the cause of the kingdom. And so this word witness comes from that word martus, and that's where we get the word martyr from, because ultimately a martyr for the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a witness who testifies of the things of God and of the truth of who Christ is. And it cuts straight across the grain of dead religion. And that's why people become angry, because it upsets their apple cart. And so, interestingly, here, uh, Jesus says, and, and I think, first of all, we're going to need to make, you know, we're going to need to deal with this uh, issue here of where he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And I just got done reading in John 8 where he said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. So how do we deal with this seemingly um, seeming difficulty here? Well, let me, let me talk to you a bit about this principle or the law of witnesses. Consider with me this principle. This principle of witnesses, or multiple witnesses, where Christ says basically here, I have four that I want to give you. I have four witnesses. And so this principle of witnesses, or multiple witnesses, shows our propensity for falsehood 
you think about it. We have a propensity for falsehood in our human nature. Human nature innately has a greater love for self than they have for truth. And so, according to divine law, and even Jesus said, you have it written in your law, two witnesses are needed to establish a fact. And so in in Deuteronomy 19.15, the divine law is stated that multiple witnesses shall testify to a matter. So our own testimony is considered flawed. If you are called before to give an account, your testimony is considered flawed in a legal court. Why? Because you innately love yourself more than you love the truth. And so you you will fudge the record for your own well-being. So divine law says, to make sure that that somebody does not accuse another falsely, let there be two witnesses or three to to establish a matter. Impartiality is more likely with multiple witnesses. It helps to uh, make sure that that the witnesses are not in cahoots, so to speak, to uh, railroad somebody into a, into a false, um, yeah, into a, to convict someone falsely. And we see this concept in business, this idea of, you know, multiple witnesses. We have this concept in, in business. When you apply for credit with a company or business, for instance, and you want to do, you know, you, you, you want to establish credit, we ask a third party for references. I mean, we're used to this concept. It's not new at all. And we even see this informally in our relationships. When, when you, uh, you know, oftentimes when we meet a stranger, in, in order to, in our search for common ground, we'll, we'll try to establish mutual acquaintances. We do it all the time and don't even think about it. So, you know, okay, so you know so-and-so. Okay, well, I know him as well. So now you have this, this is how we build trust. Because somebody else knows you, and I respect his opinion or his reputation. Now you are built up in my sight. We, we use this whether we think about it or not. And so... In verse 31, Jesus imposes this principle on himself for our sake. He says, basically, that don't take my word for it. He imposes it on himself for the sake of his audience. He's not saying that his testimony is not true. He's just saying it's invalid in a legal court. That's what he means here. It's invalid... If I just testify of myself, it's invalid for legal purposes. Because later in John 8, he says, if I testify of myself, if I witness of myself, my witness is true. And we know it has to be true. 
He is the truth. But in the sake, for the sake of the argument that he's making, he's saying, I am going to call witnesses other than myself so that you might believe and come to faith. That's kind of the argument of this passage. He goes on to say, as I'm pointed out, I, don't not, I do not need testimony from men. I am giving you this evidence that you might believe. You are the ones who need references for the sake of your faith and trust, he says. Not, I don't need your validation. And then the other general thing I want to point out about these witnesses is that these people were acquainted with all of them. Christ did not call on strangers. These were the Jewish people. They knew who God was. They had the teaching of Jehovah God. They might not have known in their hearts who He was, but they were acquainted about who Jehovah God was from little up. They were acquainted. They were not strangers with any of these four witnesses. That is important to think about. He was calling on people or witnesses that they were acquainted with, not strangers. Like if you would, you know, if, if you knew the some if you knew the king of England, but the but you the one you're seeking credit from does have never heard of the king of England, you would not call on him for a witness. No, you would you would want to say, well, here's somebody who knows me and you know him as well. So listen to him. See what he has to say about the situation. And that's where that's what we have here. So we have, first of all. As we look at point number one here, verse 32, Christ basically refers to an unnamed witness. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. That's an unnamed witness. And it's not quite, there's, there's different, there are different thoughts about who this is, but it seems like there's a general consensus that it is speaking of the Father. And so I'm, I'm just simply going to move that down to verse 37 where it speaks about the Father testifying of the Son. So number one, I want to point out that he calls this witness. In verse 33, he says, You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. And you remember, as we looked at the Gospel of John, the Jews and the rulers of the people had sent... a you know, a delegation out to John the Baptist says, who are you? And what are we supposed to do with you? Well, Jesus refers here to them. He says, you have sent to John, and he bore witness of me. He was the one who was, who was saying in his ministry, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In John one twenty nine, and you have it also, John... 132 through 34, I think it's be worth our time to just briefly hit those high points where he says, And John bore witness, John 1, verse 32, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You see the testimony that John gave to the people about who Christ is. Christ is now saying, look, I have a witness that you guys actually appreciated. John the Baptist, he testified of me. Now now consider what he says in verse 35. He was the burning and shining lamp. And I had to think about that when Brother Paul was sharing about the five uh, virgins who had a lamp. He was a burning and a shining lamp. Now, interestingly, it doesn't say that he, was, uh, that he was the light. He was the lamp whereby the light shone out of. Christ was the light. He is the light of the world. And John had a lamp, and he was a burning and a shining lamp. And by the way, this is a great word of praise from the Savior to his forerunner. John the Baptist was a burning and a shining lamp. And what that simply means is that in his testimony, he was being consumed. He's he's the ultimate martyr here. He was being consumed as he shone forth the light and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said he was a burning and a shining lamp. Was it not John the Baptist who lost his head for the sake of the truth? Well, indeed it was. You see that the truth consumed this man. He was so dedicated to the truth that he didn't care if it cost his head. And Jesus said he was a burning lamp. And the light that emanated from him, you were happy to rejoice in that light for a little time. See, there's a a key there. Just for a little while, you were interested in what he had to say until you realized that it was going to cut across the flesh and ask you to repent. Yes, you were willing to rejoice in that light for a season. But when you seen where it was going, you were done with it. He was saying, he, you rejoiced in it for a time. But then he goes on and he says, Well, as I said, you were favorably, favorably inclined toward this witness, and they rejoiced in the revelation of that lamp for a while. But John, Jesus now says, But I have a greater witness than this. Witness number two. Verse 36, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Greater than John is the witness of his Father's works. Have you ever considered that the ministry of Christ were the works of of his heavenly Father? He gave him to do these works. Christ faithfully did them. And those works testify that the Father had sent him. Greater than the testimony of John. I mean, listen, both of these witnesses are just front and center public. You couldn't deny them. I mean, they were in your face. John was preaching. He was this unique and oddball figure that came out of the wilderness dressed in a camel's hair and ate locusts. I mean, you want to have somebody look at you 
why don't you put on camel's hair? But he got these people's attention. I'm telling you, he was a public figure preaching publicly. And now the works of Christ are in the same flavor. It's out in the open for you. You can't deny that there were miracles coming out of the life of Christ. And they testified of who he was. Thirdly, we have the, we have the testimony or the witness I, where Christ says, I have made these claims of equality with God. John the Baptist agrees with the same claims that I have made. My works show that I have power within myself to do these things. I can walk on water. I can heal the sick. I can, I can still the waves. I can do all these things. They, they, they declare that I have not made a false claim, you see. These are evidences that the claims were genuine and true. And now he says the Father himself tells, tells you the same thing. I am not clear how, to, how, this, how the Father himself has testified of him. Maybe he is saying in light of the baptism, the voice coming from heaven, and declaring, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is definitely a testimony of, from his heavenly Father about his identity. But I am not 100% sure that this is that's what he's referring to here. I, I, couldn't, get, I couldn't be definite on that. For, because he says in verse, in verse uh, 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So that is what gave me trouble. If when Christ said that I am referring to the voice that you heard from heaven at my baptism, he specifically says here that you've never heard his voice. So I had trouble bringing those two thoughts together. If he's referring to the testimony of, of his baptism... Well, why does he say what he says about never having heard his voice or seen his form? Well, I'll leave it to you as a mystery. I do not understand that. But it, the point is that Christ calls on the testimony of his heavenly Father to say, my claims of equality with God are true. My Father states them to be true. And whether that is through the word of Scripture, as we'll see here in a minute, or whether it was that audible voice, I'm not sure. But the fourth witness is none other than the Scripture. Notice what he says as we move down into verse 38. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe so there is no conflict between him whom God has sent and the words that he has spoken there's no conflict notice he says you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me a wonderful just a wonderful truth here that the scripture 
in all that was spoken of in the past, all the Old Testament, because that was what was written at that point, was testifying of Jesus Christ and his deity, who he is and the promise of his coming. Interesting that the people who were given the Mosaic law missed it. Missed it. That the very scripture, which was a revelation from God to them, they missed the intent and meaning of it. But that scripture, if we read the Old Testament without understanding that they are, in, they are ultimately intended to reveal the nature and the plan and the culmination of salvation through the Son of, through the Son of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have missed the message of the Old Testament. Well, here is a wonderful thought that Christ is not asking them to believe without evidence. And neither should we. We should not ask for your faith without giving you evidences for the need of it. And for the fact that God is asking it from you. You're not meant to believe in a vacuum. You're called to have information, evidence, data, whatever. You, you, need, you need information for your faith to grab a hold of. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's giving evidence for the claims He has made. And so now He is saying that you might believe and be saved. And so let's take a lesson from that for our own preaching. For our own children we ask them to believe. I think it was I think it was Charles Spurgeon's own mother who said to him when he was 10 years old, he says, she told him, if you do not believe the gospel, I will stand in at the judgment seat and condemn you for it because I've preached to you the gospel. I've given you the gospel. What an amazing statement for a mother to make to their 10-year-old son. I have shared to you the gospel, and your hardness of heart, you have not accepted it. So we extend these evidences to one another that your faith might grab a hold, that you might have something to believe in. Well, listen. The problem is not lack of evidence. If somebody chooses not to believe, it is not for lack of evidence. Listen. Heading number two. Point number two is the resistance of his listeners. The resistance as I said earlier, of dead religion. But it may not be. Maybe you're irreligious. You say, well, I have no religion at all. Well, you're still resistant if you do not believe the evidence. The problem is not the lack of evidence. It is found in verse 40. What is the problem? It says, 
but you are not willing. See, there's the problem. They're hard-hearted. Their will was unregenerate, and they would not come to him. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's the problem. It's ultimately all the problem. Our hard-hearted, hard-hearted, hard-hearted heart is the reason that we're not coming to put our trust in the evidence of such a wonderful Savior that we have. These claims are not made without lack of evidence. You are just hard-hearted. That's why you're not wanting to come to faith. That's what, he, that's what he's saying to them. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life and listen. You may not be willing now and listen. Where that goes is a scary place. If you're unwilling, your unwillingness leads to a cannot in verse 44. Verse 44, how can you believe? You can't believe. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Well, let me look. Let me show you the common attitude of his listeners here in John 5. The common attitude that was, the attitude that was, that marked the sort of people who were listening to Jesus in John 5. I want to just show you a few of those uh, scriptures that point out how they thought and what they considered to themselves. We already know they wanted to kill him. But, but what was the attitude that caused them to want to kill him? Turn with me to John 7 in verse 45. We'll, we'll, we'll look at a few scriptures that show us what was behind this thing. John seven forty five. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? Okay, they sent him out. Go fetch him. Bring, bring Jesus Christ to us. Verse 46, the officers answered, well, no man ever spoke like this man. That's kind of an interesting thought. Okay, they, here were the officers of the law and sent out to bring this man. They said, well, no one ever spoke to us like this man did. Verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Are, are you, you, you've fallen into deception? You've, you've drank the Kool-Aid. Verse 48, have any of the rulers of the Phar- or the Pharisees believed in him? Do you see the arrogance? You officers went out to bring him in. You couldn't do it. What's the matter with you guys? Have any of the chief priests, Pharisees, have any, have any of the chief people who you look up to in our society, have they believed in him? Tell me. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's amazing. This crowd that doesn't know the law, they are accursed notice what Nicodemus says who came to Jesus by night verse 50 being one of them being one of the Sanhedrin said to them now let's pick up on this 
what, what Nicodemus said. Does our law, does it judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? The answer and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Are you also a secret disciple? Are you? Have you drank the Kool-Aid? Basically is what they're saying. Search and look. For no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And, and they just demonstrated their ignorance right there. Did Jesus come from Galilee? No. No. He was born in Judea. Bethlehem. Not Galilee. And they're saying, has any man, has any prophet arisen out of Galilee? And Jonah was one. Search the law, they said. Search it, see. And they missed it. It's just amazing when you, you see this attitude of arrogance. Just have any of us listen to him? You see the attitude? Okay. Okay, chapter 9, verse 32. Now we have a blind man, born blind from birth. John 9, 32. Here is the blind man speaking. Man, he's not blind anymore, is he? No. He's got his eyes wide open, both spiritually and physically. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Speaking to these people who were checking him out and trying to bring him into submission to their doctrine. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? (laughs) This is the sort of audience of John 5. And they cast him out. You were entirely born in iniquity and you think you can teach us anything? Who do you think you are? See, that's was the attitude. John 12. Verse 42. John 12 and verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in John 5. How can you believe who seek honor one from another? It's because you want the praise of man is why you're not believing. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. You see, this is kind of a parallel passage, John 12 here, to the John 5 passage. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge them. Okay? For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Very parallel to what we're looking at in John 5. So that is the attitude Now, I want to point out the different attitude of Nicodemus and John the Baptist. Remember what what Nicodemus said? Does our law judge someone before it hears him and tries to decipher what's going on? See, what John, what, what Nicodemus was saying, look, the content of the law, 
Does, does the law actually do that? You see, the law, the, the Pharisees were like, we have the law. We don't care what it says. We have the law, therefore we are the people, you see. We have the say. We can interpret it however we please. And then Nicodemus, being one of them, says, no, wait a minute. Does that law, does it actually judge someone before it hears it? You see, he was concerned about the content of the law. See the different attitude? John the Baptist was, had the same kind of attitude. He said, I must decrease. He must increase. I am nothing. It's only what Jesus has. He must increase. So the different attitude here is profound. Where those people who don't know the law are cursed. See, that's what they said. But then Nicodemus, when he talks about the content of the law, they said, well, are you also from Galilee? You see, we we have a real problem there. Well, he says in verse, um, going back to John 5, as we wrap these up and make some application, we want to also consider the last point. So the resistance had this attitude of superiority, looking down. And number three is the result of rejection. Number three, notice what he says. Verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. That at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be Moses, the one in whom you trusted, the one in whom you gloried, because it separated you from all the world. You see, the Torah was given to the Jews, and it set them apart. And in setting them apart, they thought they must have been really something because God set us apart. You see, they missed the whole point that God was raising up a people that through, these, through the lineage of through this people, He would raise up a Savior. And so they were trusting in the fact that they had the law. But that very law was going to rise up and condemn them. That which they had trusted in. Now, interestingly, a lot of the things that we might trust in today, in other words, what I like to say is, okay, the Jews had an apple cart. The apples were God's apples. Christ came along and upset the apple cart. People today, if you're trusting in a false religion, those apples are not God's apples. Okay? They are apples of your own doing. You've come up with your own ideas. Those ideas may not condemn you at the last day. Because you're going to be condemned by the truth of the Scripture. What I'm saying is that the Jews had something from God that was going to rise up and accuse them. 
you see. False religions the world over, they're, they're, they're a dime a dozen. And they will ultimately not save those who adhere to them. But I would like to say that the Pharisees were idol worshipers. You know what their idol was? The law. The law of God, by the way. The Mosaic law. But the fact that they had it, they they gloried in the fact that they had the law, but they didn't apply the law to themselves. And they missed the whole point of why the law was given. The law testified of who Jesus Christ is. And they missed it. Now I would like to say here that if we have a doctrine, if we have a hobby horse, a favorite doctrine, listen, that doctrine is not going to save you. Not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is the person of Jesus Christ. Why are we so inclined to embrace favorite doctrines? Why? Every doctrine has got to be understood in the light of who it points to. What it means of what that person did. I'm frankly a little concerned sometimes that we don't get... Okay, so, so maybe we have favorite preachers. Maybe we quote them too much. Maybe we have favorite theologians in the past. Every one of them needed a Savior. Every one of them. And so, let's remember that. And let's also remember that if your doctrine... If your adherence to a certain doctrine, even if it's true, if it causes you to look down on somebody who does not embrace that doctrine, you are not getting out of the doctrine what you should. That doctrine is meant to humble you. You see, the Jews were that way. Those people who know not this doctrine are accursed when they themselves were accursed. You see the hypocrisy. You can go to Matthew 23 and see it all. You can just read about it. But we're not that far removed from it. Because sometimes we kind of turn our nose up a little bit. And you know, I've heard somebody say, there's no time that a sneer is um, appropriate on the life of a Christian, on the face of a Christian. A sneer. Never. What this passage is teaching us, I believe by application, is that what we should hold to must first be applied to ourselves. And that it is a person, not a doctrine. The doctrine is pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. May we grab a hold of that truth. May we hold it dear to ourselves. 
that we don't care what you think of me or what he thinks of her or what she thinks of her, but that we would just simply seek the approval of Almighty God. How can you believe, it says, if you're concerned about what he or she thinks about this or that or the other? Now, I'm, please understand me. We, we, we're not arrogant in this. We, we're simply that we're, we're, we're so concerned with what somebody else thinks of us that we can't follow the truth. I want to say this, that every one of us here is going to find ourselves in the endless ages of eternity. All of us are going to find ourselves at some future date in the endless ages of eternity. And once you're there, it might be tomorrow, it may be 20 years from now, we don't know. But once you're there, you're in an irreversible state. Irreversible. And when you come, when, they, when your name echoes down the corridors of the judgment hall of God, and your voice and your, your name echoes down through, the, through that corridor, if you are not concerned now about the opinion of God Almighty, you will certainly be then. You will be scared to death. And you, you, will, you will tremble. I don't care how strong you are in your denial of the evidence of what Jesus is saying in John 5. There will come a day that you will tremble when your voice, when your name gets called and you come before God, then you will wish I would have never been so enamored with the opinion of my peers or the opinion of anyone except Almighty God. So my plea to you today as we apply this truth You're not going to answer to John Calvin. You're not going to answer to Charles Spurgeon. You're not going to answer to John MacArthur. Or anyone else who needed a Savior. No, you're going to answer to the God who sent this Savior and you rejected Him. That's a scary place to be. That's an incredibly scary place to be. And so, I appeal to you today to, again, ask yourself, where's my assurance? You know, in the past, I've, in, in, in my early Christian life, my assurance was very feeble. And you're tempted to reach out to, for the approval or the opinion of your fellow people pew sitters what do you think of my profession what do you you, am I a brother some of that's okay ultimately you are going to have to settle that question with God the Father and thankfully praise God his spirit bears witness 
with our spirit that we are the children of God. There's an inner witness. And I, that, I think, is a difference between the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. All of them had a lamp. All of them had a profession. Some had it for real. Some did not. We all, I, think it's, I think it's an illustration that we all are saying we, we, we are waiting on the king. Some of us are waiting for real. Some of us are playing. That's, the, that's how I understand that passage. So let's consider this passage and say what Jesus said there, you do not have the love of God within you. Well, how do you get the love of God? It is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Well, I need to close. Um, We see here in this passage that the words of Christ are as sure as all of Scripture. And that all of Scripture is as sure as the words of Christ. They're equivalent in this passage. Well, let's not seek honor from one another, brethren. Let's go to God. Because that's who you'll stand before ultimately. And please understand me. I think we are to give honor to whom honor is due. But ultimately he says here. I do not receive glory from men. I, I'm, I know who I am. But you are seeking glory from one another. And I think that's what was happening in the rabbinical community. One, one rabbi backed up the other one. This backed up that one. We see that all over the place, don't we? We build each other up when we're not even that interested in ultimately what God has to say. Uh, That, brothers and sisters, is not fooling anyone but us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just make this passage so practical to us that we would rise up by faith and accept the evidences that you've given to us that our faith would be strengthened and that we would always remember that our savior is a person the lord jesus christ father we 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 look to you we long to glorify christ and we pray that you would bless each of us here With a further blessing, through Christ we pray. Amen.